Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails a Series on the Thirty Years of War, and this is episode seven. previous episodes, we've introduced rivalries which were bound to tear Europe asunder, and we also examined the major theatres. But something which we haven't really talked about, a major omission from all of these stories, was the theatre in the East, where the Ottoman Empire loomed large and terrifying. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Ottoman Empire, first of all, you're missing out, it's a very fascinating state in of itself. But it can be hard to imagine something as terrifying and as all-encompassing as the Ottoman Empire. Particularly because of the lands that it occupied, coming out of modern-day Turkey and extending into the Balkans and southeastern Europe, it was quite a sight to behold. But it wasn't just a sight, the Ottoman Empire dominated the concerns of the Habsburgs right up until at least the middle of the 18th century. In this episode, our task is to examine a much less personal, but no less weighted conflict. The emperor didn't have to worry about his Protestant subjects in this case, but he did have to worry about a power which was perfectly capable of coming to his capital and storming its walls. In fact, an Ottoman Empire army had been at the walls of his capital less than a hundred years before. And as circumstances were to prove, it was by no means impossible for the Ottomans to mobilise such a force again. These two powers first came into contact with the conquest of Hungary by the Turk in the early 16th century, and upon that momentous occasion, the Ottomans and Habsburgs would share a common border permeated by smugglers, towering fortresses and unruly vassals. These ingredients proved critical to facilitating the outbreak of a war in 1593 between the two powers. This conflict has long been termed the Long Turkish War, and sometimes the Thirteen Year War, based on the amount of years that it lasted. Coming into the 17th century, still at war with its formidable eastern foe, the Austrian Habsburgs hardly gave the impression that they would be ready for the Thirty Years War within a decade. 
And yet, the war against the Turk, expensive and inconclusive though it largely was, was also a worthwhile endeavour for the experience it provided the military men in Hasburg's service. The next time the Holy Roman Emperor was forced to use force, these men, who would cut their teeth in the wars against the Turks, would play pivotal roles. Such military lessons, as well as many other lessons besides, make up the tale of this long Turkish war, and it forms a critical plank of the background story of the Austrian Habsburg experience. The border between East and West in the year 1590 was not represented by a line on the map delineating two different spheres of influences, but by a fluid, floating series of interconnected rivers, fortresses and wasteland. There never existed a time when the Holy Roman Emperor and the Ottoman Sultan met together and mutually agreed on the border between each of their states. Instead, there was a state of near-constant warfare, be it through skirmishes, raiding parties, initiatives undertaken by minor potentates, or full-blown invasions led by the Sultan in person, which threatened to upset the weak balance which had been established. The Ottomans were in by far the stronger position. It was they who possessed the most vassals, and could therefore call on the most auxiliaries in the region, and it was also the Sultan who tended to initiate the conflict through a fresh invasion. One historian summarised the strategic position of the Turk by examining its borderlands with Christian Europe, a position reinforced by more than a century of constant conquest and military triumph. This historian, C.M. Courtpeter, wrote, The northern periphery in Eastern Europe, apart from central Hungary, which had been annexed outright, consisted of four vassal states, the Principality of Transylvania, whose vassalage followed Ottoman victory at Mohac in 1526, the Principalities of Moldavia, both of which had paid tribute to Sultan Mehmed II, or Mehmed the Conqueror, of Constantinople and the Crimean Khanate, over whose khans established the right of appointment and dismissal from 1475. These entities generally served the Ottoman buffer states on the borders between the Habsburg Empire, Poland-Lithuania and Muscovy. From this extract, from Court Peter's article, we can observe that the Ottomans had a strong record of wresting submission from the petty princes of the Balkans, a process which added much to their fearsome reputation and prestige. Still, this appetite for conquest and glory had not been satisfied since 1547, when the Ottomans and Habsburgs signed a peace treaty that committed the Holy Roman Emperor to pay tribute to the Sultan. Paying for peace was a strategy that the Emperor at the time, Charles V, that being Charles V of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and the New World and the Netherlands, etc., etc., it was something he felt forced to accept, even though that pill was hard to swallow, thanks to the morass of other problems facing his authority, not least of which were the repercussions of the Reformation, which divided his realm and detention according to religious persuasion. The Ottomans had proven an ideal candidate to distract the Emperor long enough for the adherents of Luther's new creed to survive. And this was an interesting pattern. It was a pattern of capitalising on the danger posed by the Turk to wrest new concessions from the Emperor. It was a great boon for the growing number of Protestants in the Holy Roman Empire, and it went a great way towards explaining the compromise between both groups which followed the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, 
which we've talked about a whole load already. As Geoffrey Parker wrote, This was almost standard procedure. Since the 1520s, every Ottoman thrust up the Danube allowed the Protestants to sell their military and financial support for a campaign against the Turks in return for guarantees of religious toleration. As Leopold von Ranke pointed out long ago, without the Turkish threat, German Protestantism would scarcely have survived. The converse is also true. Without the Protestant-Catholic schism in the 16th century, the Turks would probably not have conquered as much of Southeast Europe. And this only serves to underline the interconnected nature of these theatres at the time. The conflicts of the Reformation were connected to the expansion of the Ottoman state, but the legacy of the divisions within Christendom meant that in a Europe once united against the Turkish threat, this defence had long since splintered as religious differences and no shortage of self-interest dominated. Much to the chagrin of the Holy Roman Emperor, by the late 16th century, the old taboo of negotiating with the Turk had long been overcome, and it was not uncommon to see Christian powers contact the Ottomans in the name of an anti-Hasburg agreement. As the historian Franklin L. Baumer put it, Something like a diplomatic revolution did certainly occur in the relations between Christian powers and the Turk during the 16th century. Beyond dispute is the fact that before the century was out, practically all the Christian powers had established embassies at Constantinople and on occasion sought Turkish military aid against Christian rivals. The idea that the Ottomans were just another cog in the machine of European diplomacy, and not a barbaric force to be wholly maligned and feared, had achieved currency with the King of France's shocking creation of an alliance with Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1520s. With that example of realpolitik before it would have been called such, Queen Elizabeth of England followed suit later in the 1500s, and established during a 17-year span of diplomatic contact what one historian has called the first sustained communication between an English monarch and a non-Christian ruler. Indeed, while the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, fought a war against the Turk from 1593 to 1606, Queen Elizabeth was in contact not only with Sultan Mehmed III, who ruled from 1595 to 1603, but also his mother, Yet this striking case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend didn't prevent Elizabeth's church from reciting the following prayer during her reign, which read, Almighty and ever-living God, we thy disobedient and rebellious children, now by the just judgment sore afflicted and in great danger to be oppressed by thine and our sworn and most deadly enemies, the Turks, infidels and miscreants, do make humble suit to the throne of thy grace for thy mercy. Evidently, then, the relationship only went so far, and it was never destined to be truly amicable so long as the English people associated the Turk with images of the barbaric infidel and as a scourge on mankind. During the reign of James I of England, this image of the Turk was not challenged by his court, even though in practice English trade with the Ottoman Empire sharply increased during these years. Habsburg policymakers may have held a measure of nostalgia for the high point of Christian cooperation against the Ottomans, that being the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, where a coalition of Christian powers defeated the Turks at sea. That this battle occurred a generation before the latest outbreak of hostilities 
did not make the appearance of another Holy League to defend the Habsburgs particularly likely. There was to be no Christian cooperation on this occasion, as the Habsburg family had tied up several of Europe's most important powers. The French, English and Dutch were all at war with the Spanish Habsburgs in 1593, leaving the Austrian branch of that dynasty beleaguered and alone, but not completely alone. Habsburg negotiations with the Pope had led to the creation of a force of 11,000 men paid for by the Holy See, and the Spanish King Philip II did send what little money he could spare. In addition, Habsburg diplomacy reached out to those aforementioned Balkan vassals who had come under the thumb of the Sultan during the conquests of the previous centuries, those vassals being Wallachia, Moldavia and Transylvania. The question of how war between the Habsburgs and Ottoman Turks was resumed after half a century of peace, and, for that matter, a recent renewal of the 1547 peace treaty in 1590, cannot be answered without placing the Habsburg-Ottoman relations in context. Something which is important to bear in mind is that the vague border between the two entities was always unsettled and always contained degrees of conflict which varied throughout the seasons. A Habsburg-Ottoman peace, in other words, did not render the borderlands either silent or safe. This state of constant friction and non-cooperation between the two neighbours can be explained at least partially by the demands of Islamic ideology, as one historian wrote. Islam, by prohibiting Muslims from shedding the blood of another Muslim, turned pre-Islamic concepts of war outward against the enemies of the faith. Only one kind of war was recognised as lawful, the jihad, or holy war, conducted to expand the domain of Islam. The concept of perpetual war to defend the faith and expand boundaries was inherently compatible with the Ottoman view. It was not, however, consonant with the outlook of their Christian enemies. Further grounds for conflict were maintained in the competing claim of the Habsburg Emperor and Ottoman Sultan. Both individuals claimed to be the successors of Rome, the Emperor by right of appointment by the Pope in 800 AD, and the Ottomans by right of conquest following their seizure of Constantinople in 1453 from the Byzantines. With the religious as well as the ideological grounds for hostility well established, the only factor maintaining peace was the lack of interest either party had in resumption of total war. Thanks to a variety of factors though, this lack of interest was destined to change. Following an increasing number of raids across the two borders, an initiative launched by the Turkish governor of Bosnia against some Christian outposts upped the ante, and this was reciprocated by an assault on a Turkish column, who drowned in large numbers while attempting to flee. These actions looked suspiciously like those undertaken during a full-blown war, and for the Ottomans to prepare a reprisal effort and the Habsburgs to defend themselves adequately, the peace treaty would have to be torn up. The initial manoeuvres revolved around the seizure of important fortresses along the Danube, which watched over the Hungarian plains that served as a kind of wasteland between the two empires. Buoyed by the aforementioned papal contributions, in 1595 the Habsburgs were able to take the fortresses of Estergom and Visegrad from the Turks, thereby loosening the latter's hold on Hungary. That same year, the Balkan allies, which had been encouraged to join the Christian war effort, struck hard and fast. In August 1595, Michael the Brave of Wallachia, one of the petty leaders of these states, inflicted a stunning defeat upon the Ottomans. 
in the battle of, and forgive me as I butcher this pronunciation, Kalugureni, where Michael the Brave had been outnumbered by more than two to one. The victory inspired praise from the papacy and the Spaniards. Michael the Brave followed it up by defeating the Turks again with aid from Transylvania and 300 cavalry from, of all places, Tuscany. This Italian connection was important because Italian naval raids against the Ottomans' possessions in the Black Sea had been so successful that Sultan Mehmed III supposedly threatened to kill all Christians in Constantinople before eventually settling on a mere expulsion of all unmarried Greek men from the city. Impressive as these victories seemed on paper, the Ottomans maintained a massive superiority in numbers at all times, and this superiority was beginning to tell. Sultan Mehmed III sought to take advantage of his superiority in numbers by assembling an army of 100,000 men in Hungary, filled by men from all manner of vassals and tributary states, and knitted together by the elite Janissary infantry at their core. The Sultan had known to prepare the way beforehand as well. The army would be accompanied by livestock, and it would stop along the journey at certain regions, specifically tasked with growing rice, to feed his men. Thanks to such preparations, the Ottoman army's staple diet of lamb and rice would be maintained, and the Turk would eat far better than his Christian counterparts, at least until these stocks ran out. In 1596, this army had travelled the 500-mile journey with the Sultan at its head, and by late October, they defeated the Christians near Irlau. In the Battle of, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation as well, Metzokarestis, a victory which cut communications between the Austrians and their Balkan allies. This was the great and dashing triumph which the Sultan had sought. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And with his name made in battle, he returned to his harem and placed the command in less glamorous hands. So the 1590s continued without many more battles of consequence, largely because the Sultan had gone home, and both sides sought to consolidate their positions and reinforce the fortresses under their control. The Danube was still the most important front though, and attention was focused on the Hungarian frontier. So the real story, by the late 1590s, was not the action in Hungary, but in those Balkan vassals co-opted by the Habsburgs of which Michael the Brave of Wallachia 
was most important. We're going to talk about Michael the Brave of Wallachia a bit more in just a sec, but first, I wanted to remind you guys that this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and while the month of March is upon us, and I didn't actually talk about who the podcast of the month was in February, the podcast of the month in February is basically all about Travis J. Dow. And if you weren't aware, Travis has released several podcasts. And when I say several, I don't mean one or two. I mean like a whole buttload of podcasts. But probably the most famous that he has is A History of Germany, followed by the Bohemican podcast. But he also has several others, including The Secret Cabinet, which is also available in German, and A History of Africa as well. You can check him out by going to podcastnick.com or clicking on the link in the description below. Travis and I are good friends, and we had a very fun collaboration a few years ago, so make sure to check that out as well. If I remember, I'll put that in the description too. And make sure you check out the actual Agora feed as well, simply by searching for it. Or hey, maybe I'll put a link in the description below. Because, recently enough, I talked to my good friend Benjamin Jacobs about what went down in Ireland with Ireland's election, So you may want to listen to that episode. It has been recorded, but I'm not sure when exactly it'll be released. So keep a keen eye on that feed. And then when it's released, hopefully I'll be in tune enough to let you guys know. In March, it's a bit awkward because I am the podcast of the month. So go and listen to me if you haven't already. But seriously though, check out the other people in the Agora feed. Because they are, like myself, utterly obsessed with all things history and being nerdy in general, and they'll fill your head with wonderful facts and figures that you can't live without. A huge thanks to you guys who also have decided to sign up on Patreon, I really appreciate it, and you can sign up by clicking on that link that's down below. For $2 a month you can get these episodes ad-free, and for $5 a month you can also be listening to a great story, Poland is not yet lost. I'm sure you know all about that already, so I won't go on and on about it. I'll just say thanks for what you've done so far and for making podcasting and PhDing simultaneously possible. But back to our story. Following Michael de Bray's victory against the Turks at Kalugareni in August 1595, Michael's star continued to rise. He remained a critically important figure for Orthodox Christians, and as he was fluent in Greek, He styled himself as a successor to the Byzantine emperors of old. Whether his ambitions had truly gotten out of hand, whether he imagined himself as a successor to those emperors, is difficult to discern, but his downfall began in 1599, once the prince of Transylvania, Andreas Bathory, was succeeded by his cousin, Sigismund Bathory. Sigismund, if you weren't aware, was the nephew of Stephen Bathory, and Stephen Bathory had been the Prince of Transylvania, who had also reigned as the King of Poland from 1576 to 1586. Sigismund Bathory's plan was to abandon the new course of Transylvanian foreign policy, and instead to return to the old strategy of allying his country with that of Poland. Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor at the time, could not abide by this about-face from Transylvania, particularly as the Hungarian frontier remained so sensitive, so he determined to authorise Michael the Brave to begin a punitive campaign of invasion against Transylvania in an effort to reorientate the region back towards the Allied camp and away from a Polish alliance and potential neutrality. 
Now, you might think that this whole policy of effectively invading someone to make them see things your way wouldn't go very well, but Michael the Brave was pretty happy to invade his neighbour. In fact, the Wallachian ruler was so enthusiastic that he didn't just stop at Transylvania, he also invaded and took control of Moldavia for good measure. Michael the Brave, it appeared, had ambitions to unite the region under his rule. As a kind of anticipation of the state of Romania, which would not come into being for more than 250 years. As Demetrius Johann Gika put it fairly eloquently, writing in 1876, Thus, at the beginning of this glorious reign, Wallachia, Moldavia and Transylvania were in the hands of Michael the Brave. The dream of the Eastern Latins was realised for one short moment, but this noble edifice was soon destined to crumble. Intrigue and jealousy were fast sapping its foundations, both from within and without. Indeed, Michael had gone too far, and his efforts to fulfil his ambitions had thoroughly alarmed the Habsburgs, who didn't want to lose control of the region to the triumphant, popular, romantic Wallachian prince. The Poles were also angered, since they had welcomed the prospect of a firm Transylvanian alliance to guard their border against the Ottomans. In spring 1600 then, as if things hadn't been complex enough at this stage, the Poles invaded Transylvania, while the Turks invaded Wallachia, and Michael, who was caught in the middle of this pincer, appealed to the Habsburgs. This was more like it for Rudolf II, and with Michael the Brave's cooperation, the Poles were actually driven out of Hungary in several running battles. In spite of this comeback though, Michael was not redeemed. His ambitions were plainly too dangerous for Habsburg stability, and in mid-August 1601, Michael the Brave was assassinated on the orders of the Holy Roman Emperor. Thus perished, treacherously, the bravest warrior who ever fought for the independence of Wallachia. As Demetrius Johann Gika put it. But this was an act which Rudolf was soon made to regret. The rash act of assassinating one of the foremost Christian leaders in the region created a power vacuum which, it transpired, only the Turk was able to fill. Subsequently, the Balkan states of Wallachia, Moldavia and Transylvania succumbed to the Ottomans in rapid succession, and for the next two and a half centuries, they remained largely quiescent. By the turn of the 17th century, much of the initial enthusiasm for war had evaporated, and the Balkan losses only added to the impression that the conflict with the Ottomans should be brought to an end. The Ottomans too were becoming eager to end the war. Not only were the costs mounting as stores ran dry and salaried troops demanded more pay, but revolts within the Sultan's household also threatened his authority. Sultan Mehmed III would surely have expected his rule to be absolutely secure. After all, he had taken extra precautions at the time of his ascension in 1595. He only ordered 19 of his surviving brothers and countless sisters strangled. So, he could be forgiven for thinking that he'd done all he could to secure his reign. Since Ottoman sultans had free reign of their own exclusive harem, illegitimate children tended to be a problem for their successors, and Mehmed's father Murad had fathered as many as 130 boys through his concubines, along with an unknown number of daughters, since, well, these were not recorded, because they're not important. Child mortality meant that many of these children didn't survive to adolescence, but Mehmed was anxious to ensure that nature was encouraged to go a bit further. He could not afford any threats to his regime. Apparently, being an only child was something of a mission of his. 
Yet Mehmed faced a revolt against the domination of this culture of the harem from Ottoman upper classes, who had lost significant influence in previous decades. In league with other malcontents in Turkish society, these figures seized the opportunity to take over Constantinople itself in 1603, sending the Sultan, then in his harem, a terrible warning. As if these threats to his regime were not bad enough, to the east of the Ottoman Empire lay another formidable Islamic power, Safavid Persia. At regular intervals, Safavid Persia, based in modern-day Iran, would attack the Ottomans in the east, while the Habsburgs attacked them in the west. In this respect, the negotiation and cooperation with the Habsburgs was similar to the famed Franco-Ottoman alliance against the Habsburgs, and it proved just as devastating in this instance. Having been dormant for some time, Persia was enjoying a resurgence under its Shah Abbas the Great, and in the war launched against the Turk in 1603, the Persians overcame the beleaguered and distracted opposition sent against them, deceiving several efforts by the Ottomans to overwhelm them at large numbers, and delivering a crushing blow in the process to the Sultan's prestige. Pressed on two fronts, not to mention troubled at home, Mehmed was eager to make peace with the Habsburgs before the situation worsened, and then he died in 1603 at just 37 years old, to be succeeded by his son Ahmed, who ruled until 1617. The brief and tumultuous reign of Mehmed III may have been over, but the Sultan's court remained a place of intrigue for many years to come, as the authority and powers of the Sultan were gradually eroded. Chaos in Constantinople did not prevent the new Sultan from taking advantage of a striking consequence of Habsburg financial disorganisation. In 1599, a small French company of infantry sent to aid the Habsburgs in their war effort actually defected to the Ottoman side due to want of pay. By the time they arrived in front of the Sultan, their pay had increased fourfold as their price for defection rose with the stakes, and one historian has written that, the Sultan was intrigued by their magnificent appearance, as well as by their muskets and arquebuses, which, when they fired a salute in a manner quite unknown to the Turks, he was so impressed that he sent them a present of money and allotted them to lodgings in Galata. They went around at will, carrying their swords and sporting a white plume in their hats. Unfortunately for this band of 200 or so men, their future was not destined to be particularly bright. Once the peace between the Habsburgs and Ottomans had been agreed to in 1606, they were sent to fight against Safavid Persia, though they were still allowed to retain their French captain. By 1611, though, scarcely 80 of these 200 men remained alive. The ordeal of these French soldiers defecting to serve the Ottoman Turks was deeply embarrassing for King Henry IV of France, since not only did the defection of his forces convey dishonour upon the French reputation, they also brought into the open the fact that the French had come to the aid of the Austrian Habsburgs originally, however limited their provision of aid had been. This was problematic for Henry as well, because he had wanted to maintain the immensely beneficial and strategically important alliance with the Turk. In the event, though, the fact that Henry had originally allowed these mercenaries to join up with the Austrians in the first place didn't jeopardise Franco-Ottoman relations, though it does provide a fascinating window into the flexible nature of loyalties during the era, as we meet a group of men 
who were prepared to forsake their cultural roots entirely and seek their fortune in a society which was in popular imagination the antithesis of their own. In the words of C.F. Fingal, who wrote an article on the fate of these mercenaries, Emperor Rudolf II could not afford to lose men and the cities they guarded to desertion or defection, but even with the conclusion of the war with the Ottomans in spring 1606, it was plain that great and grave challenges lay ahead. Rudolf's realm was increasingly split along religious lines, and these divisions made themselves felt during the long Turkish war, as Protestants agitated to wrest concessions from their emperor in return for their loyalty and aid. Now, as we've seen, this strategy was one steeped in tradition, as much as opportunism by the turn of the century. Calvinist efforts to have their creed legalised were met with resistance and failure from the Catholic core of the Habsburg power base in the Holy Roman Empire. More discerning still from the Protestants, the Catholic Counter-Reformation appeared to be gathering pace, as the Catholics maintained their iron grip on the Empire's two key institutions, the Imperial Diet and its Supreme Court. Catholic refusal to redress this imbalance and remodel these institutions to better reflect the religious status quo were met with anger on the Protestant side and a refusal from 1601 to recognise any rulings on ecclesiastical questions made by the Supreme Court. In 1603, these frustrations were not helped by a Catholic refusal to permit more Protestant delegates into the imperial diet. The years following 1603 were tense, exacerbated by moments of confrontation, such as when the Catholic Duke of Bavaria, Maximilian, was allowed to seize the Protestant town of Donauwörth and annex it into his duchy in 1607. In protest at this act, and at the repeated refusal of the Catholic hardliners to accept Protestant arguments, both Lutherans and Calvinists alike walked out of the imperial diet in 1608. This done, there was now no facility for the Protestant princes to receive legitimate redress of their grievances. As if to acknowledge this, the Protestants created their own means of redress, the Evangelical or Protestant Union in summer 1608. These steps towards conflict are familiar to us from previous episodes, but the element of the Turkish war should also be considered within the caustic mix of ingredients that made such hostility within the empire possible. Since 1555, a peace between the two religious groups had for the most part been sustained. Following Habsburg, financial and political overextension during the war with the Ottomans and their resilience against Protestant demands during the campaigning months, this peace had never appeared in so much jeopardy. In 1609, as we know, in response to the formation of the Protestant Union, Maximilian of Bavaria, having already demonstrated his hardline resistance to Protestant concessions, went further by contributing a large portion of the funds necessary to establish the Catholic League. Two organisations, defined by religion, now roamed in the empire, and both had apparently scorned the traditional constitutional methods of airing or addressing their grievances in favour of the sword. The problems facing the German people have been aggravated by the Turkish war, but as we'll see in the next episode, these problems had deep and disruptive roots, which threatened to choke all sense of progress and stability, which the Empire had, to that point, managed to maintain. I hope you'll join me in two weeks 
for that story, history friends. But until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 7 of the 30 Years War. You're all brilliant for listening to me and for tuning in on a regular basis. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.